Amen. Well, good morning, Damascus Road. We are going to be in uh, two places today. So if you don't have a Bible, first you need one. There's some in the back you can grab. If you do, we're going to open up to Judges uh, chapter 2. And then if you go to the left, about uh, three or so books, you will get uh, to the book of Deuteronomy. And you want to keep a finger in Deuteronomy chapter 6, because we're going to be in there as well. And it will be um, up on the screen, but... uh, I sometimes read faster than that, uh, than the keyboard guy, so we'll see uh, how well we do. We're going to start in Judges chapter 2. Uh, for those who don't know, we're in a study of Judges. There are a few booklets still available. We'll print some more on that back wall as you come in. Booklets of all our sermon series with study questions and, and things. Uh, it's just a resource to help you, so please get one of those. We're going verse by verse. We'll go through chapter 9 by the time we're in May, and then we'll take a short break and continue the rest. But right now we're in chapter 2, and we're beginning verse 6, and read through uh, verse 11. So you could ignore the little bold uh, subtitles in your Bible. Those were not put there by Jesus, but by some godly men who thought it would be great to break it up. We bust through those and do what we do, um, because they're not really there. So, verse 6 is where we'll start. It says, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his his inheritance in timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And all God's people said, This is God's Word. So Joshua chapter 1, I'm sorry, Judges uh, chapter 1 is really the expanded version of what happens in verse 6 of chapter 2. It's kind of like the book of Genesis that kind of like seems to repeat itself in the second chapter, but this is an expansion of everything that happened um, in uh, really this one verse, chapter 6 which is the prologue of what happened after Joshua 24. That's where I read in the introduction to uh, this series. And in summary, the people who, uh, the generation that is listening to uh, Joshua's final speech in Joshua 24, is a generation of warriors. Uh, They are a people, an army, that were uh, a group of eyewitnesses to God's power. In a very real and tangible way. So Joshua, having reminded them of God's grace, he charges them, as we've already seen, to respond faithfully as they continue in the land. And what they do, they confess their allegiance to God, and Joshua writes down everything he said and everything they confess to, and they put up a stone as a monument to remind them of everything they've just agreed to, that we will continue to be faithful. And so, they're released, as we see in verse 6 here, 
and they return to uh, their allotted lands. And last week I gave you a map that was on the bulletin. Probably should have given it to this week as well. But it outlined the boundaries for the land. But it's important to know that those are the boundaries, as you see those maps, that God allotted to them in the book of Joshua. Those aren't actually the boundaries they fully lived in. So that was what they were supposed to fully possess in many ways, but it, you know, they had other little pockets of resistance that they had to actually uh, push out and drive out. So they leave uh, excited and passionate and bold and encouraged to keep fighting uh, for everything that they did uh, in the same way that they did the initial conquest. Um, and this generation, we, we kind of forget, this generation witnessed some pretty amazing things. Uh, they watched God work right in front of their eyes. They'd seen, uh, as their parents had seen, uh, water separated. In this case, it was the Jordan River. They saw that divided. They walked across as the beginning of Joshua. They watched the walls of Jericho fall down after marching around it for seven days and then just going, ah, and it fell down, which was pretty amazing. Uh, they'd seen one of my favorite uh, chapters in Joshua 10. Not only had they seen uh, the sun stop in the sky, the day kind of cease in some way, who knows what that means exactly, but in the midst of the battle, as they're swinging their swords, these large, what amounted to probably about 100-pound, 200-pound hailstones fly down and kill people before they can even kill them, Uh, but God basically wiped out more people than they killed in the battle with big hailstones. Pretty amazing. He saw, and he saw God recount... um, the hornets that were released to drive out some of their enemies from the land. So God did some pretty amazing things, and they saw uh, city after city and village after village and king after king fall before God firsthand. In a very real way, they lived the stories. So, and they did so for approximately uh, a generation of time, 35 to 40 years. They, they kind of saw all this happen. And as younger children... Uh, they had seen some of uh, even the uh, early Exodus stuff. Some of them were old enough to experience that as well. But he, uh, Joshua, led them as their general, and he was strong and courageous. He was careful to do all that God had commanded, and he served faithfully. And though uh, the parents prior to Joshua's generation had been unfaithful, they had been the ones who were not allowed to the land, this unfaithful generation produced a faithful generation. Uh, and you're going to see this faithful generation produce an unfaithful one. It's kind of a pretty crazy pattern, if you will. But now Joshua dies. His death is recorded for the third time. So he dies a lot uh, in the Bible. And he is buried in a chunk of land that he has provided uh, because he was the general and he proved faithful. Um, So he is buried in this city. Now, eventually, after Joshua's death, it says that all of his lieutenants, all the elders, all of the kind of leaders that he had who outlived him died. So all the guys that were faithful leaders had passed on, and the generation that, in, for all intents and purposes, knew God in every sense of the word, uh, not just knew of God, but actually knew him personally, died. And then the verse... Um, says that another generation arose, verse 10, who did not know the Lord or remember the work that he had done. And what happened was, instead of this younger generation, this generation that came after Joshua, their kids, 
instead of remembering to do what God had said, instead of knowing what he believed and knew was right, they determined their own right and wrong. They determined their own good and evil. They decided to determine their own definitions and their own, um, according to their own desires. And they denied basically the one true God, and they began to go after uh, the most appealing false one, because there's a lot that can be followed. And it was the one that met their own felt needs and their own desires. And as one commentator put it, amnesia always leads and did lead to idolatry. They forgot. And the question that I'm left with, that I sit with, go like, how did that happen? Like, how could that happen? How could you have this incredibly faithful generation who experiences amazing victories, watches these mighty works of God, give rise to an entire generation that doesn't know him? And the scriptures don't explicitly say, well, the parents sucked. But, I, and I'm a little hesitant. I was talking to Kellen last night about this. Like, I'm a little fearful because I don't want to preach a sermon where it's like, everyone leaves feeling like a crappy parent uh, because their kids are faithful or unfaithful or whatever. That's not what I want. But there has to be something to blame. Something to point to. And yes, we can just say sin and move forward. But... There's some responsibility that's been lost. Something went wrong to have this incredibly faithful generation with unfaithful kids. The problem um, was not the fact that the stories weren't passed down. They were actually, many of them were written down. Joshua wrote down what they had confessed and what they said. And he'd written down his whole speech, most likely. So that told all the stuff. The problem lies in the fact that for some reason they became just and remained stories. Perhaps that's how you view Scripture. A lot of us, a lot of others, you know, those other people, view Scripture that way. Those are good stories. They're helpful. Maybe they happened. And they just remain as stories. They also failed in some way... um, not to just not pass on the memory, but they didn't pass on the promises, the covenant statutes, the rules. But more than that, what we see, I think, is that you had a very faithful generation, Joshua's generation, that had been committed to God's mission in the land, to bringing God into the land, to fighting to get God in the land. But at some level, some place, somehow, they had not fought to get God in their own families. One of my greatest fears as a pastor is that I have screwed up kids. Why? Because I've let, met a lot of screwed up pastor's kids. The movie Footloose, right? Girl with the red boots. Pastor's kid. Oh, great. Right? Never let my daughter buy red boots. Okay? But there's that mentality. It's like you've... It's like almost become this, this terrible stereotype of like, you know, pastor's kids. You know, they're just screwed up. And why? Because a lot of pastors do amazing things for the Lord except the one thing that is most important. Love and bring God into their families. And so, this new, genera- new generation, um, they had heard about God. They even knew a lot about Him. But for some reason, they did not know him personally. More than that, they were not loyal to him because I think at the core, they had not learned to fear him. 
And I believe the key to learning to fear God lies with loving the Word of God. Really, truly loving the Word of God. And I think more than that, and we'll hit this in a second, it's showing my children my own fear of God. Not just telling them they should fear God, but letting them actually see it. God has always placed the primary responsibility for teaching His Word on the parents. Some of you are not parents, some of you have been parents, and some of you are parents thinking your parenting's done. Some of you will be parents. I'm here to tell you, if you've got kids, your parenting's not done, I don't care how old they are. But it was God's commandment to the parents, and ironically, if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, in Deuteronomy chapter 7 is the command, the very specific command, to go into the land, to annihilate the enemies, to uh, not intermarry, to not make agreements, and to rip down the altars. But in the chapter prior to that is what they were first supposed to fight for. Before they fought in the land. What they were supposed to do. And it's interesting that those are put up right next to each other because I think they, they go together, but sometimes we only do one or the other. The Israelites were incredibly committed to the ministry that they forgot that, or maybe what really was, their first ministry. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. a powerful passage. I'm sure you've heard it before, but I'm going to try to kind of make it a little personal. Because it's beat me up all week and now it's your turn. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1, says this. Now... Moses speaking, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it. They're not there yet. That you may fear the Lord your God. That's why. Catch that? That's why I'm going to teach you. Not so you become really moral people, though that will invariably happen, I believe, when you fear the Lord. That you and your sons and your sons' sons will do the same by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So parents are and were responsible to ensure that God's law was taught for three generations. Some might argue four. You have their own generation, your own generation, our children, and then our grandchildren. And it seems to imply that even if you don't take responsibility for that, That's the level of influence your responsibility or lack thereof has, which is frightening, but very real. We all know that. Our parents and their faithfulness, lack thereof, has affected us. Their parents has affected them, which affected us. It all is connected. And my faithfulness or lack thereof, my sin will affect my children and their children. 
That's the brokenness of the world we live in. And I don't say that as a, a dark, you know, picture to say that's reality. And there is hope in that. There is, I believe, truth in the fact that Christ said it is finished and things can be different. But three generations is what we're to concern ourselves with. And the law was not designed just to be this list of rules. He says specifically, it was designed, yes, to protect God's people from the evils of idolatry, but it was also designed to help them grow. It was designed to have them, help them have big families. It was designed to help them enjoy the land as they worship in His way. And so what we see, this was not the responsibility of the Israelite children's worker, or the Benjamite youth pastor, or the priest who did guide and did shepherd, but ultimately was not responsible as the parents were. The lack of godly parents, not the lack of a godly pastor or leader, is what led to the idolatry of Israel. That's huge. Because we look at like well, the tribe of Judah. Yeah, the tribe. We realize where the tribe of Judah went wrong. It wasn't as a tribe, as a huge community. It was as families. That's where it started or stopped, however you look at it. But what exactly had they failed to teach? I mean, what, what did God want them to know? And, and, what, and how were they supposed to know it? Were they supposed to have like Sunday school all the time? Were they supposed to have, um, you know, just have some kind of catechism where they're going through constantly? Maybe. See what it says. Verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you should teach them diligently to your children. And you should talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your host's house and your gates. So they were to teach very clearly that there was one God, not many gods, which is what the world they were living in said. They were to teach their children to love God with everything that they had, not just that, well, there's these things you love God with and not these things. There are these things that are spiritual and these things that are not spiritual. They were to teach God's way diligently, not just on Sabbath. What we see is um, they were supposed to talk about Him and His ways all the time. The Jews took this very literally. Some of you who have been here longer remember when I went to the Exodus series and I demonstrated the, what they would put on their heads and then I forgot to take it off the entire service. <laughs> Luckily, we don't have video because it looked pretty foolish. I totally forgot I had this box like this. I was like, you know, in the Lord, like this. Look like an idiot, okay? But they took it very seriously. And ultimately, what you get is this picture of remembering and learning and discussing 
the things of God so much that it saturated the home. I mean, when they're sitting in their houses, when they're walking around, when they're laying down, I mean, it's like you are to talk about these things. What? The love for the Lord, to teach His statutes, to think about His things. I mean, you think about what you're passionate about. What you're most passionate about. The thing that dominates maybe a lot of your time, a lot of your thinking and energy. And I'm not suggesting it's a bad thing. But whatever the thing it is. And you ask yourself, what characterizes or dominates or is the aroma, if you will, of your home? What would people say your family's passion is? Man, this family is passionate about this. You are passionate about this. What would your family say you're most passionate about? Because it was supposed to be the things of God. And I remember teaching a Bible study once to our men. It was the first study we taught on reforming marriage. It was about marriage. And one of the questions I just simply asked was like, well, when was the last time you talked about Jesus at home? He just kind of mentioned his name. In regular conversation, not in like Bible study where it becomes such a natural way of doing things, where it becomes so central to who you are that it's just like, this is how we behave. And I know we have these pictures of like, I never want to be like that, where like, you know, you're quoting verses and singing hymns as you're making dinner, and maybe, maybe that's the way it ends up for you, but we have this like negative stereotype of like, of what it would look like, so much so that we don't make it look like anything. But there's a saturation of, of the home. It's supposed to be so much that it's on your doorpost, Again, the Jews took it literally, and they put this passage on their doorpost. But it was not just supposed to be their doorpost. It was supposed to be on the gates where they would speak of it outside of their home. Children would be taught that whatever is done by the hand and whatever is thought by the mind is to be governed by the Word of God. And parents were to be leading in doing that. And it's amazing how much we have abdicated that responsibility. I don't know if the Israelites really thought about that. I I think for the most part, they got so entrenched in fighting for the land, they forgot to fight in their families. For us, we go out and we we fight in the the world. We create amazing things. Some of us are very successful. Um, We get good at something. You ever want to be good at something? Like there's the people that, I mean, that guy's just really good at business. He's really good at art. I've always wanted to be the best of something. I think that's like everybody. Maybe not. Like, I just want to like, yeah, that's my thing. I'm the, I'm the mechanic guy. I'm the, you know, builder guy. You know, I'm the artist. Something. I always had friends who were like, yeah, that guy's really good at this. That guy's a great basketball player. Uh, that guy's this. I'm like, my thing is, I'm a good reader, you know. <laughs> what am I? You like fill out that resume, you know, you're putting like putting your uh, resume together and you get like hobbies and you're like, what? Hiking, you know, because like that's like just requires walking in woods. So it's like not really something you're good at. But then I kind of went through a paradigm shift and basically said, you know what? I am the only one in the universe ever created who can be the best husband to my wife. And the best father to my kids. There's no one else who's called to do that. All right. Put that on a resume, right? 
But we get so passionate about other things. We do so good on the things out there that we don't actually get passionate about the things that are probably most important. Making sure our kids and our home is governed by the Word of God. And so, because the families of Israel failed to remember what was primary, again, it's not that they didn't do anything. It's they, weren't, they weren't like deadbeat Israelites in every sense of the world. They were just kind of partially obedient. You know what I'm talking about, partially obedient. And so their children forgot. They had obeyed commands to fight for God in the land. They disobeyed in their fight for the word of God in their homes. And so you go, well, how does a family start to do that? Like, where does, where does it go awry? At what point does it go cuckoo? And I think it's when you begin to listen to lies. And quite frankly, it's the same lies that our first family listened to. They're no different. They're exactly the same still. You want to see what the lies are, you go to Genesis chapter 3. There are three lies, and that's where everything begins to fall apart. And they're all lies about the Word of God, which are ultimately all lies about God himself, and we begin to believe him. The first one is God's words, not authoritative. What did Satan say? Well, did God actually say? Did God actually, did his word actually, was his words this? And this is the lie that God's, you know, really not authoritative, that um, his word is either not simply, uh, or simple to understand or clear, And what begins is, I think, small doubts about God's word leads to full judgment on God's word. And what happens is emotion and intellect and experience begin to fight to take over the word of God as the governing authority in your life. And instead of the word of God being the authority to judge what's going on in the world, to evaluate what's good and what's bad and what's right and what's wrong, we bring the world in and we judge the veracity and the goodness and the rightness of God's word. Because that's authoritative. My experience is, is key. My experience can be wrong. This is what I feel. My feelings can't. Feelings aren't wrong. I'm here to tell you they are. They are. Especially if it leads you away from God's Word. God's Word helps us to govern those things. So God's Word's not authoritative. First lie. God's Word's not right or wise. What did Satan say? Well... <laughs> You're not going to die, right? Yeah, God said that uh, if we eat this fruit, you die. Oh, you're not going to die. God doesn't know what he's talking about. He's really not all-knowing. Things are open to interpretation. doesn't really mean that. In fact, God's not only, his word's not, only not authoritative, it's not only not really wise, it's not trustworthy because he says, which means God's not trustworthy. No, you're not going to die. Actually, you know what God knows? You're going to become like him. So now it's not that God um, isn't authoritative only, not that he's only like doesn't know what he's talking about, he's not wise, he doesn't know the right decision, the best decision every time. He's actually lying. He's not truthful. He's holding out on you. Essentially, it makes God to be this, this liar or this kind of authoritative, mean dad who wants to kill all your joy and hold out on you, you know, hold out on the true parts of life. What he really knows is going to like feel so good, you're not going to have anything to do with him. 
They're all lies, and they all lead to death. And what the core of it is, just a, a basically a rejection that God's word is central to life. That God's word is the most important thing for our home. And when uh, one has rejected God as authoritative, and God as wise, and God as truthful, then you basically have stopped fearing the Lord. And when you have stopped fearing the Lord, there is absolutely no sense of urgency to be faithful to what he says. In Joshua's generation, they had actually feared the Lord and experienced prosperity as a result. And the kids of this new generation, they had experienced the prosperity, but really never learned how that came about. They just thought, man, things are pretty easy. They had forgotten what God had said to Joshua and how they actually accomplished their prosperity. It was quite simple. Joshua 1 Verse 8, God had said, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that, this is why we meditate on it, you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. So if we don't meditate it day and night, we might be sloppy in actually obeying it. Yes. So why do we read our Bible? So we actually understand what God's will is for our life. It's quite clear. So then once you've are careful, then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. That's to do what God says. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Don't forget that. Don't forget. Man, listen. What did Dad say? What did God say? Listen, listen. Okay, yes, now I'm going to do this. It will ensure good success. Contentment. So we're left to wonder if they were so uh, committed to completing God's mission that maybe that's why they failed to realize that the mission began um, or the home was the key to that mission. And for some reason, this new generation grew up with comfort and ease and without a sense of an enemy prowling about like a roaring lion looking for someone to kill. The idea that there is an enemy out there that wants to destroy your relationship with God, that wants to destroy your relationship with others, that wants to destroy everything that God holds dear. And because of that, they let their guard down and they even tried to maybe pet the lion that wanted to eat them. That's kind of how it happens. That's not so bad. You forget that there's a war going on. So I think I read Judges and ask, like, how... Okay, so even if they're unfaithful, how does it become so broken, so perverted, because it gets pretty bad as we get into Judges, so out of alignment with God's design? Well, it didn't start with one giant unfaithful tribe, just as it doesn't start with one big unfaithful nation, one big unfaithful state, or unfaithful government, or unfaithful church. It starts with unfaithful families. That's where it starts. It's that simple. It's that small. It's that essential. When the truth of God is forgotten in a family or an individual, the man becomes the center of the universe. When, when worship, the, the Creator becomes optional, what we do is we start to look for something else to worship. When we forget the promises of God or reject His Word through a lack of, I think, intentionality, that void is naturally filled up with something in the world. That's our default mode. That's what Romans 12 says. If you ever read Romans 12, you've probably heard this verse before. 
And this is for all of us who think, well, it'll work itself out. Oh, it'll work itself out all right. Let me tell you how it's going to work itself out. Ready for it? Okay, good. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. There's some activity there. As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world. That's default mode. That's, uh, it'll take care of itself mode. Oh, it'll take care of itself. You'll be filled up with the gods of this world. And you will like it for a time. You'll tolerate it for a time until you start to accommodate it. And eventually it oppresses you and kills you. See, when we reject God and his word, you don't actually become an atheist. There's no such thing as an atheist. I do not believe in atheists, just as they do not believe in God. Okay? (laughs) Atheists worship something or someone, most of the time it's themselves and their intellect. But there's no such thing as a pure atheist. They are worshiping some false god, and there are many to choose from. And they all have three things in common. One, they're not gods. Duh. Two, they are actually created things, many of which were given to us as gifts and are good. But men make them into ultimate things. Men take good things and want them too badly, ultimately, and they pervert them. And lastly, these false gods are things that we actually think we can control. That's why we like them. We don't want a God who says, all right, do this and trust that I've got everything under control. Why? Because we don't feel like we're in control and we have to feel that way. That's called faith. We don't like that. And so what our flesh likes is a God whom we can control by what we do. Same God of the legalist, same God of those who would give indulge into sin. The same gods. This is what happened to the generation that followed Joshua's generation. They went after the gods of the Canaanites, having forgotten the one true God, having forgotten everything he'd warned them about and everything he'd promised and everything he'd said, having kind of forgotten that, they began to look for something else to worship. Enter Canaanite gods. They're everywhere. Let me just tell you what they're like. The Canaanites were all about fertility. They were an agrarian culture, and they were about fertility of crops Fertility of their flocks, fertility of their livelihood. That was what made them successful and content and satisfied. They had two main gods. There's many in the pantheon, but they had two main gods. One was named Baal. And you read about Baal often um, in the uh, Old Testament. And he was a god of nature, really storms and kind of weather. And he had his female friend with benefits named Ashtoreth. Okay? to read about Asherah poles all the time. There's always an altar to Baal and an Asherah pole next to it. And fertility of their harvest in their cultures, fertility of their flocks, meant health and wealth in their economy because they were an agrarian culture. And that fertility depended in their perspective and their theology, that fertility depended upon these sexual relationships 
between Baal and Ashtoreth. So, they figured that to help encourage that relationship to be fruitful, the Canaanites developed a very um, complex and celebrated system of sex and sacred prostitution as a way of religious life, all connected to their fertility of their crops and their land and their livelihood. So in an attempt to get better rain and better sun and better soil, they would encourage the gods to, you know what, by having sex themselves with prostitutes that were of a religious order. It was an act of worship for them. It's not really too difficult to see why the Israelites might have been allured by this theology. Why they might have given into this kind of idolatry. They were attracted by um, three things. Two of which sounds a lot like our culture. Money and sex. Money and sex. That saturates our culture today. Most sin is driven by one or the other. Money and sex. But ultimately, the reason why the sin behind the sin, the thing that really drives us, is because the Israelites wanted a God that they could control. That they could worship and could control and get what they want by how they did that. That's idolatry. That's why people go after false gods, because they can control it. It brings them contentment. It brings them meaning. It, it you know, gives them that satisfaction they're searching for. Think about it for a second. I, I ripped this off from a comment. I rewrote a little bit, but imagine, because I know we well, I'll take this a little personal. We'll take it really personal into daily life. Imagine the evangel- evangelistic uh, Canaanite, who is supposed to be dead, mind you, but the Israelites let him hang around a little bit. And so he decides, as he's uh, you know, working alongside the Israelite, to have a little religious talk, bring some religion into his work. And as they're talking, the Canaanite asks him, Oh, so, Israelite, what has God done for you? What has Yahweh ever done for you? To which the Israelite would probably begin to recount how God saved his people from Egypt. It's a well-known tale. Uh, how he had given his law, met them on the mount, and gave them his law to worship him. How they had, he had divided the Jordan. How he had conquered uh, all these lands and brought down Jericho. And he's like naming all these things. And the Canaanite probably respond with, well, you know, that's great and everything. But that was a real long time ago. What's he doing now for you? I mean, I'm not, I'm not so worried about the big moments and the miracles and stuff like that, but what, what about the daily grind? Like, what about what's happening in your life? Real life, man. You ever had those kind of conversations? What does a cross 2,000 years ago have to do with you today? I mean, imagine this Canaanite saying, I need help to get through my day. I need to make money. I need to manage the stresses in my life. I need to feel like I'm in control. What's he doing for you right now? Because that's why I go down to the temple. That's why I worship like this. I can control things. I can get what I want or feel like it. You want to join me for a midweek service? 
probably what he did. And sadly, the Israelite probably followed him down. Because the Israelites had failed to teach God's promise to the next generation, they look and found other gods to both fear and to worship with very deadly false promises. And they found them in the lies of the world, lies about what was right and wrong, good and evil, lies about definitions and decisions, lies about roles and responsibility, literally lies about what God said must be driven out of the land. You don't need to get rid of that. Lies about what God had said in terms of how you're supposed to have relationships with the world. Lies about who you're supposed to marry. And lies about what is actually true religious worship. And for a while, I think they actually, we saw last week, they could control them. A little toleration, a little accommodation until eventually they were overcome. So now that we all feel like crappy parents and the weight of the world on our shoulders of like, so my faithfulness dictates no. I don't want you to go there. Then there is hope. And before I hit that hope, I want to give a very certain charge to you because I do want you to feel the weight. I talked to Ken about this last night. I said, I'm a little fearful. She's like, why? She's really encouraging. I said, because... um, I don't want people to leave going, oh, I just, you know, the faithfulness of me dictates the faithfulness of my kids. And she's like, well, it certainly has a big impact. I'm like, yes, it does. But more than that, I want to charge you to say this. You, as a person, have been given a generation of time. As a person, as a family, as a church, to live for the Lord. I don't know how much time we all have, but if we have a generation of time, it's 35, 40 years. And we are to use that time diligently to know Him and to make Him known. We are not to waste our time. To waste your time is to be oppressed and overwhelmed. We are not to waste our time. God's Word has the power to transform an individual's life, the life of a family, and the life of a city. That is where the power resides. And this does not begin with a really good government social program. It doesn't begin with some church evangelistic, amazing outreach program. It simply begins in our families. That's where it starts. That's where God has planned to restore things. And what we do in our families for the next 40 years will influence one another, our children, and our children's children. That is what the Word of God says. But, so here's the hope. Big but. Remembering the wrong things is just as dangerous as remembering nothing at all. Remembering and meditating on the wrong things is just as dangerous as not remembering anything at all. If you're not careful, parents, church, with the best intentions, we can pass on to our children the wrong things and the wrong perspective of God. Because when we start thinking about rules and statutes and we think that, we go, okay, 
rules and statutes. Here's the list. You make that list. And you're hammering law. Law, 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 because God said hammer law. And the question for us all is, how do we avoid making a family of Pharisees who are really good rule followers? How do we avoid, in teaching God's truth, creating people that confess with their mouths, oh, we love you, Jesus, but not with their hearts? There's a huge tension there. Well, here's the hope. Because I always am a little fearful that parents, after hearing this sermon, will miss the point about where this needs to begin. So if you go down to Deuteronomy 6, where I don't even know if you've read the second half of Deuteronomy 6, but you should. In verse 20, here's what it says, and I think it's um, an awesome reminder. And we'll close with this. And when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Why are you teaching us all this stuff, Dad? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before your eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day, and it will be righteous for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Here's the hope. We must remember that faith came before following. Faith came before following. We must remember that deliverance from Egypt came before the law was given. Freedom from slavery comes before faithfulness in the land. Transformation of the heart must come before reformation of any kind of behavior. This is the gospel. It does no good to do a bunch of good things. It will accomplish absolutely nothing. Just as no good to teach a bunch of good things without the foundation of the gospel. A transformed heart. Keeping the law was important, but not without a foundation built and taught on the gracious redemption of God. What he had done by grace, not having earned or deserved anything. And then, obedience to God, obeying his statutes, becomes a delight, becomes response to being saved, not attempt to be saved. That is essential. If your kids do not learn that, they will hate God, they will hate the Word of God, and they will become really good Pharisees who fake that they love God. It begins 
with redemption. The Israelites were called to learn two things before they did anything what we considered good. They were to know who God is, and they were to know what he has done. And as Christians, we are to know two things. Who Jesus is and what he has done. That's where it begins. Do we teach our children the statutes and laws? Do we teach them to live godly? Yes, but not before we teach them they are sinners saved by grace. And how do you teach someone to truly fear the Lord like that? You tell them how you fear the Lord. You confess that you are a sinner to them. Have you ever told your children that you're sinful? Have you ever confessed that you've made mistakes with them? Have you ever reminded them that you are a sinner saved by grace in the same way they are? And that the only way you can endeavor to be better is because Christ is working through you? That is what must come first. And then we can build a generation who's faithful. Who knows? Maybe the Israelites taught all the rules right, but they missed the fear of God peace, the gracious redemption peace, where it had to begin. So as you come to the table, we don't come to the table of morality. We come to the table of brokenness, where Christ said, yeah, you could never have made it, so I did it all for you. Accept it, that I love you more than you could ever admit, and no, but you're more sinful than you can ever admit. This is what we teach. I pray that you don't leave here as parents going, I'm responsible for all of it. You are responsible, but focus on the gospel first. That's where it starts. Let's pray.